This program is made possible by the membership donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from All In With Chris Hayes, The David Pakman Show, RJ Court Watch, The Media Matters Minute, The Young Turks, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Majority Report, and This Week in Blackness. And just a quick reminder, because it's easy to forget, both abortion and birth control are actually legal in the U.S. Mike Huckabee is not backing down. He is doubling down as we enter day two of libido game. Some of you may become somewhat uncomfortable as parts of this film unfold, but I think if you listen carefully, you will agree that the concepts will contribute to the rearing of a mature person who has a healthy, responsible attitude toward the sexual side of his life. Given the GOP's track record of talking to women about their own reproductive health, the RNC's winter meeting was the perfect opportunity to roll out a new, more female-friendly Republican Party. Instead, they got this. If the Democrats want to insult the women of America by making them believe that they are helpless without Uncle Sugar coming in and providing for them a prescription each month for birth control because they cannot control their libido or their reproductive system without the help of the government, then so be it. But this was no off-the-cuff remark. Huckabee has said something similar before, as in this past Saturday. For Democrats to reduce women to beggars for cheap government-funded birth control is demeaning to the women that I know, who are far more complicated than their libido and the management of their reproductive system. Huckabee is now fundraising off his remarks, warning liberals should get ready for more of this talk. But according to fellow social conservative Rick Santorum, this isn't even about birth control. That's one of the things that's most frustrating, is there isn't a lot of disagreement on access to contraception. It's a surprisingly different tone from this other guy, also named Rick Santorum. I don't think it works. I think it's harmful to women. I think it's harmful to our society uh, to have uh, a, a society that says that, you know, sex outside of marriage is something that should be encouraged or, 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 or tolerated, particularly among the young. Birth control to me enables that, and I don't think it's a healthy thing for our country. But now Santorum 2.0 says this isn't about birth control. This is about the government. That's one of the things that's most frustrating, is there isn't a lot of disagreement on access to contraception, whether the government should pay for it. There is a disagreement. Ah, yes, the government, or as Mike Huckabee calls it, Uncle Sugar, defined by the Urban Dictionary as another word for Uncle Sam, the concept that Uncle Sam is everyone's pimp because he takes his share of your money before you get your share. The man charged with strengthening the Republican brand is slowly backing away. We must all be very conscious of tone and choice of words when we communicate those policies effectively. Another day, another plea from GOP leadership to the base. As NBC's political team wrote this morning, Huckabee falls into the contraception trap. So what is that trap and why do Republicans keep falling into it? The trap is this. While birth control is widely popular and used by millions of women in this country, there are powerful parts of the conservative base who think birth control is bad and that government and employers should have nothing to do with it. Right now, the Republican Party and its allies on the religious right are waging a legislative and legal battle against the Obamacare birth control mandate, which requires that employer insurance plans cover contraception at no charge. Republicans object to the mandate on what they say are religious freedom grounds. They don't have the authority under the First Amendment to the United States Constitution to tell someone in this country or some organization in this country what their religious beliefs are. This is not a women's rights issue. 
This is a religious liberty issue. This attack by the federal government on religious freedom in our country must not stand and will not stand. So just remember, all these repeated gaffes from prominent Republicans happen because the GOP is fighting against birth control and yet desperately want to convince America it has nothing to do with birth control. But of course it does. I've talked for a very, very long time on this program about the absurd internal inherent contradiction in which right-wing anti-choicers who are against abortion in any and all circumstances are also typically against birth control access, certainly many times when covered by insurance. They are in favor of abstinence-only sex education, which not only is at face value a not a good idea, but also does not work as demonstrated by so many studies, and are against the morning-after pill as well on the grounds that it is an abortion, which, of course, we have researched and, and reported to you that it is not. Well, that doesn't make sense, because those are all methods and techniques and, and services and products that would reduce the number of abortions which they claim to want to do. Well, today we have new information from the Guttmacher Institute, which reports that the United States abortion rate has reached its lowest level since 1973, the year in which the Supreme Court decided Roe versus Wade. Credit goes not at all to the group which claims to not want abortions at all. That group has had absolutely no responsibility for reducing the abortion rate in this country, which is incredible. They have, they have opposed just about every policy that contributes to lowering the abortion rate. And as an article on the Daily Beast points out, the best example is contraception. Mike Huckabee recently suggesting that women need contraception because they can't control their libido. Another Republican presidential candidate, Rick Santorum, thinks contraception is, quote, not okay, and that the Supreme Court decision guaranteeing contraception access to married couples should be overturned. House Republicans are constantly pushing measures, often they go nowhere, to overturn and restrict contraception access. And obviously, contraception reduces unintended pregnancies, some percentage of which will lead to an abortion. This is so obvious, and it is just, I, I, I would use the term ironic, but the term ironic almost implies that this isn't a huge injustice and absurdity, but it is somewhat ironic that the group most against abortions bears no responsibility for lowering the abortion rate to its lowest level in 41 years. Yeah, well, it's as simple as just dismissing facts and information, which is what they've been doing for quite some time. Uh, I don't know if they actually believe that their strategies work when trying to uh, uh, to combat whatever they're combating. Clearly, it doesn't. But I and don't whatever know, I, I, whatever they believe about their strategies, we know 
what strategies do and don't work, and they should be thanking the so-called pro-abortion liberals for the policies that have reduced the abortion rate to its lowest in 41 years. I'm not really holding my breath for any credit or, or compliments from the anti-choice right. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order and soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Big day at the Supreme Court. Oral arguments for Hobby Lobby and the Conestoga Wood specialty cases. And apparently there's confusion out there about what are the issues before the court and what's at stake. So this seems like a perfect opportunity for you and I to break this down for folks. I agree. And it's such a crucial issue. And I have to admit, I've been very, very excited about these oral arguments for a very long time, mostly because I'm a bit of a law nerd in that way. But it really is striking to me how many people, whether it be just your average layperson or people in the media or people who are supposed to know these things, still seem to be confused about what's at stake. You know, I think some of the confusion, too, comes from a lot of the willful misinformation that the folks opposed to the contraception mandate have put out there. Uh, we've talked about how there's two tracks, really, to the challenges, right? We've got the political track and we've got the legal track. And among the areas of, of confusion, I think, is this really broad statement that corporate Corporation owners have religious rights that they get to exercise through their businesses. And that's just fundamentally a misstatement of the law. Yeah, it really is. And, and to adhere to that notion would be a fundamental rewriting of corporate law. And so what these corporations are trying to do is they're trying to avail themselves of the bits of corporate law that they like but then ignore the stuff that they don't want to adhere to. So for example, when you form a corporation, you get to avail yourself of limited liability. So if your company gets sued, then you personally as an owner or as a shareholder, by and large, are not responsible for whatever liability you incur. And that's why people form corporations. But what these, what these corporations and these corporate owners want to do is to sort of pass through their own religious liberty through to the corporation. And that's just not A, that's not how it works. And B, the point is that Hobby Lobby or Conestoga Wood or any of these corporations that are seeking religious liberty, that it's the corporation that will have to pay the fine, not the actual individual owners. So there's this attempt to conflate the owners with the corporation, and that violates literally hundreds of years of corporate law. And when we talk about conflating the corporation with the owner and violating hundreds of years of corporate law, we have to think of why would they want to do it. There have been some amicus briefs that have been filed by states, by especially by states with Republican governors, that are making the argument that well, you know, we have state laws that govern corporate law and it's, you know, it's improper for the Supreme Court or for any 
for Congress or any federal level uh, entity to try to state what the law should be in the states. But at a certain point, there has to be rules and there have to be regulations. And while it is true there is no federal body of corporate law, there are laws that underpin all of the state corporate laws. So what they're trying to do really seems to me to be is to dismantle corporate law as we know it. Absolutely. And so good examples of some of those federal laws that underpin state corporate law would be Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, for example. Any of our fair employment type laws, overtime, wage compensation, anything that we've seen historically for-profit corporations raise objections to under the guise of religious liberty. This is nothing new. And for some reason, we've found a new way to package it and to sell it. Yeah, I think it's gotten, like you mentioned earlier, that there's sort of two tracks. There's the legal track and the political track. I think, you know, I think if we were to look at it purely from a political standpoint, I would have to admit that Hobby Lobby is winning. But when you look at the actual legal arguments, and there are so many legal arguments, whether or not you want to talk about the elements of RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or whether you want to talk about the Free Exercise Clause or the Establishment Clause, I really do think in terms of legal arguments that the the, the birth control enthusiasts, such as we are, have the winning argument. So the question really becomes whether or not the Supreme Court is so politicized at this point in time that it will sway towards the politicization of these cases rather than following what the law says. Because in my opinion, and I think in a lot of people's opinions, if you are going to look at the, the number of amicus briefs filed as any indication, it's that we, we win. The birth, you know, Cobby Lobby loses, Conestoga Woods loses, you know, they can't burden third parties, they can't make us pay for their religion by denying us birth control or forcing us to pay out of pocket for birth control. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm John Kerr. The Supreme Court is hearing arguments over the Affordable Care Act requirement that businesses offer insurance plans that include contraception coverage as part of their preventive services. On Fox's The Kelly File, Fox News judicial analyst Andrew Napolitano said of the case, As everybody knows, the Affordable Care Act requires anybody that employs 50 or more people to provide health care for them that includes contraceptive services. Contraceptive services means contraception, euthanasia, and abortion. Napolitano is completely wrong. As the Kaiser Family Foundation explains, the preventive coverage includes, quote, FDA-approved contraceptives, and abortion coverage is specifically banned from being required as part of the essential benefits package. Further, medical providers and insurance companies are legally protected under the Affordable Care Act if they choose not to provide euthanasia or assisted suicide services to patients. The issues of abortion and euthanasia are also not relevant to the cases currently before the Supreme Court. State Senator in Virginia has compared women to hosts when they're pregnant. Uh, this is uh, Representative Steve Martin, or State Senator Steve Martin, I should say. And apparently he received a Valentine's Day card from a reproductive rights organization, and it urged him to change his voting record when it comes to uh, reproductive rights in the state. Well, he took great offense to this, and he wrote the following on his Facebook page. I don't expect to be in the room or will I do anything to prevent you from obtaining a contraception. However, once a child does exist in your womb, I'm not going to assume a right to kill it just because a child's host, some refer to them as mothers, doesn't want it. So when I saw this, I thought, wow, what a strange way of putting it, right? Mm -hmm. And 
And then an, an idea popped into my head. It's because you have to understand, in our context, we view women and men as equals, and we don't have this vision of, like, the biblical vision, uh, honestly, if you take it literally in Genesis, that says man, uh, God created women to be the helpers of men, mm -hmm. right? They, they're not here to do anything but to serve men, right? Uh, I, I never grew up in that, Anna didn't grow up in that, so we don't understand that, right? But if you grew up in that, you might think, well, okay, a woman is not really relevant, and in fact, for long periods of history, whether it was in Islam or Christianity, they were treated as property, right? Mm -hmm. But what is relevant is the unborn, because it might be a male. Okay, so th that's why we never could understand why do they care more about the quote-unquote unborn than they care about the born? Why don't they care about the woman? Because the reality is the woman is irrelevant in that mindset, in that worldview, but she's relevant as a host because she could be carrying a valuable male. Now, I know that if you didn't grow up in that, like me and Anna didn't, right? you got to be thinking, no, that sounds crazy. That can't be the case. But, but that's because you're not as bad as these guys. You're not sexist like these guys. You didn't grow up in that context. That's why he says things like, you know, she's valuable as a host. Yeah, she's nothing more than a vessel to deliver a baby, and that's it. Hopefully a male baby. Look... These stories keep popping up, and what always interests me is how you get this pushback from the right wing when it comes to this war on women. And look, maybe that phrase is something that makes everyone feel uncomfortable, even progressives, but the reality is, the reason why that was even coined in the first place is because you keep getting statements like this from re Republican lawmakers. If they want people to stop using that phrase, if they want the mentality to change toward the Republican Party, they need to stop referring to women as hosts or vessels or, you know, doing, they need to stop doing things to get rid of reproductive rights. Focus your attention on other issues, right? So they say that they care about the economy, they care about balancing the budget, they care about creating jobs. Focus on that. In 2012, all they would focus on was legislation that would help fuel the culture wars. So that's the reason why people keep saying that this is a war on women. And that's the reason why I say that women who vote for Republicans are absolute morons, because they're not looking out for you. If you want to be submissive, if you believe that your only role on this planet is to serve your husband and to serve other men, then that's fine. Go ahead and vote for Republicans. But the reality is they see you as second-class citizens. They see you as a vessel. They see you as a so-called host. They're very freaking clear and blunt about it. And if you're into that, cool. If you're not, stop voting for these crazy people. <laughs> he then changed his post, to be fair to him. And when he got in trouble, by the way, and people were like, you know that that's not a good way to refer to a woman. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of meant that. I, I knew that. I was joking. Uh, so uh, he changed it to, they are the bearer of the child. And then, and then he, he wow, woo, thank you, we appreciate it, you're not merciful. And then he released like a semi-apology, let me read that to you. He says, I don't see how anyone could have taken it the wrong way. You referred to her as a host. <laughs> it was me playing their argument back to them. Obviously, I consider pregnant women to be mothers. But no, no liberal or progressive or pro-choice woman ever made the argument that women are hosts. It makes it sound like they're out of the movie Alien, right? What do you? We, nobody ever made that. No, no, you made that argument. By the way, this guy was the former chairman of the Senate Education and Health Committee in his state. This is the guy they put in charge of your health and education. Sometimes we get angry, but we must not condemn. Let the good Lord do his job. 
You just pray for them. I pray your brakes go out running down a hill. I pray a flower pot falls from a windowsill and knocks you in the head like I'd like to. I pray your birthday comes and nobody calls. I pray you're flying high when your engine stalls. I pray all your dreams never we are joined with Emily Martin, Vice President and General Counsel for the National Women's Law Center. Thank you for having me. So there's been pages and pages and pages of briefing, hundreds and hundreds of pages of briefing that I know you, Amani, and I have all sort of poured through at various points in times. But I'm curious as to what you see as some of the most important issues before the Roberts Court in the Hobby Lobby and Conestoga cases. Well, one of the most important issues is sort of the key threshold issue, which is whether a for-profit corporation like Hobby Lobby or Conestoga Wood has the right to exercise religion. And that is sort of the the question that the court will have to answer before it gets to any of the other questions in the case. And it's a question with really big implications since what Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Wood are arguing are that they as for-profit corporations uh, not only have religious rights, um, basically the right to pray as corporations, but they have the they have the right to exercise their religion in a way that harms third parties, and that's a fairly radical assertion, which with apparent um, potentially large implications if they were to succeed in those arguments. Can you lay out some of the uh, implications for what those would be? So if Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Wood were to succeed in this case, then presumably for-profit employers would have the right to object to providing all sorts of other kinds of health care coverage based on their religion, everything from vaccines to blood transfusions to HIV treatment, that those are all kinds of uh, health care that a for-profit employer could potentially say, you know, I have a religious problem with this coverage of your insurance. We're not going to cover that regardless of what um, we would be legally required to cover otherwise. But it's also the case that it goes even beyond the healthcare context, since if an employer has a religious right to say, you know what, we're not going to follow this law and we're not going to provide the birth control that we are legally required to provide and that you have a right to, an employer could also assert, you know, we, a for-profit corporation, have a religious objection, for example, to paying women as much as we pay men. And even though the law requires us to do that, because that substantially burdens our religion, we don't think we have to. And those are the sorts of cases that you could see. You could also see cases where uh, for-profit employers assert that they have the right to exam for example, deny services to somebody based on their sexual orientation or their race. The same sorts of issues that we heard being debated in Arizona recently when Arizona was trying to broaden its uh, religious rights bill to include corporations. Those are all possible consequences if Hobby Lobby were to succeed in all its arguments before the court. 
Why do you think that the opposition so far has succeeded in largely framing this as an issue of religious liberty when in reality there's so much more going on here? Frankly, I think that the conversation in Arizona was helpful in its timing in making clear where religious liberty arguments can lead if you give for-profit corporations really broad religious rights and making clear that what we're really talking about here is the assertion that religion gives you the right to discriminate against others and to harm others, to violate others' rights. And that is not something that we have a history of allowing people to do in the name of religion. Let, let alone corporations. Your organization has been really involved in tracking and participating in the challenges to the contraception mandate and defending the mandate. What have been some of the most surprising arguments you've heard against the contraception mandate? Well, I don't know if it's surprising, but it's certainly always notable when um, arguments are made against the contraception mandate based on the notion that um, somehow birth control is some kind of optional luxury that women should have to pay for on their own. So, for example, one of the briefs uh, against the mandate in one of the many cases out there said that, you know, women can use their own money to buy uh, contraception or cocaine or cotton candy, whatever they want. And so denying coverage for birth control shouldn't have a real impact because women can always just use their money out of their paycheck to buy their own contraception, which uh, really shows, first of all, a ridiculous trivialization, I think, of the importance of birth control as fundamental preventive health care for women. And it also ignores the fact that cost barriers have a real impact on women's ability to access the most effective and appropriate forms of contraception for them. So, for example, one of the particular forms of contraception that Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Wood are objecting to is the IUD. Um, the IUD happens to be an extremely effective form of contraception, but a form of contraception that has a pretty big cost barrier to entry. It can cost about $800 to get an IUD right at the front end, which means that it's too expensive for lots of people if they don't have insurance coverage for it. And what the contraceptive coverage requirement does is allow, it, it takes away that obstacle and makes sure that if the IUD is the most appropriate form of birth control for this particular woman based on her judgments about her situation and her advice of her healthcare provider, that the cost isn't going to force her to use something that's less appropriate and less effective. And I think that it's, it's a little shocking how, uh, how arguments against the contraceptive rec coverage requirement ignore those real-world impacts. Are you surprised at the number of amicus briefs that have been filed, and do you have any particular favorites that you think make the argument, well, besides your own, uh, your organization, <laughs> but um, do you think that there are any amicus briefs that have been filed that really cut to the heart of, of, of the issues in this case? Well, I think there have been a lot of great briefs that really tell the story from a lot of different perspectives, So, including some unusual perspectives. Uh, so, for example, there's a brief by 
corporate law professors that talk about how the idea of allowing a corporation to exercise the religion of its shareholders is really contrary to basic tenets of corporate law, which, uh, which really creates an important distinction between the corporation and the people who own the corporation. So I think that's an interesting and important angle. There's is another brief filed by the Women's Chamber of Commerce and the LGBT Chamber of Commerce that really talks about all the corporate governance issues that could arise if you recognize a corporate right to exercise religion and how this could really be kind of a pain in the neck for a corporation who was not interested in exercising religion but who made face um, shareholder lawsuits saying we as your shareholders think that you should exercise religion XYZ and would be faced with having to navigate these competing claims from stakeholders. Um, There are also some great briefs that really go into the public health interests that are forwarded by this requirement, including ours, but others as well that talk a lot about how important birth control is to women's health and to the health of the children they bear, since spacing of pregnancy is important to children's health as well as to women's health. And there are there are some briefs that come from religious groups talking about how if you um, were to grant the Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Wood the rights that they are seeking, that that really harms religious pluralism in this country, given that it would allow those corporations to really impose their religious beliefs on their employees who come from many different faiths. So I think that those are some of the most important parts of the story that the Supreme Court uh, should be paying attention to. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. On election day, if you want to, you can stage a protest anywhere in America on a subject of your choosing. It's a free country. And if you want to stage your protest on election day, you might want to stage that protest where you know you will have basically a captive audience and a captive audience with politics on their minds. You might want to stage your protest at a place where people are voting, at a polling site. You have the right to do that. You have the free speech right to do that. But because we also have laws that protect prospective voters as they go to fulfill their constitutional right to vote, 
You can protest outside a polling place on election day, but you can only get so close when you do it. You have to abide by a protective buffer zone so you don't interfere with or intimidate or unduly influence people as they go about casting their vote. The size of that buffer zone varies from state to state. In, say, the state of Massachusetts, you have to stay 150 feet away from the entrance of a polling place when voting is underway. But there are also buffer zone laws at military funerals. If you're someone who believes that the best use of your time is to protest at the funerals of American service members, and there are people who believe that, God bless their souls, well, the U.S. Constitution and our right to free speech means that you have a right to protest at funerals. But, again, buffer zone. Federal law says that you can get no closer than 300 feet to the entrance of that military funeral that you are protesting. That's how the law and the courts balance that particular right to free speech with the rights of the loved ones of that fallen service member not to be harassed and terrorized as they attend the funeral of that person they loved. Same general idea, actually, for protesters at the Supreme Court of the United States. If you're protesting at the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C., whether you're happy with the Supreme Court or mad at them or anything in between, if you're protesting at the court, you have to stay a certain distance away from the entrance to the court. There are no protests of any kind, no public demonstrations of any kind, allowed anywhere on the 250-foot plaza of the Supreme Court. So if you want to protest at the court, you're welcome to. But there's a very specific geographic limit on that right, which gives the court effectively a 250-foot geographical buffer zone from any protests. On December 30th, 1994, a man with a gun, 22-year-old man, walked into the Planned Parenthood Clinic in Brookline, Massachusetts. He walked up to the receptionist and he said, is this Planned Parenthood? And when the receptionist told him it was, he shot her and he killed her. And he was not done. Eyewitnesses say he arrived dressed in black, pulled out a 22 caliber rifle, and as they tried to flee, opened fire. The gunman shot four people before escaping here. One woman, a clinic worker, died at the scene. But the terror wasn't over. Just 10 minutes later, a similar attack at a clinic blocks away by a gunman also dressed in black. He drops the duffel bag, pulls out a rifle, and I was stunned when I saw the rifle. Before he hit, he shoots the girl I'm talking to. She falls. Three people were injured at the second clinic, including one woman who died at the hospital. A massive manhunt involving federal, state, and local police agencies is underway. But authorities stopped short of saying the same gunman carried out both attacks. We are presently in the beginning phase of an intensive investigation find the individual or individuals. The two clinics are just a mile and a half apart, and anti-abortion activists have protested frequently at both. Clinic officials confirm that both clinics received death threats over the last few weeks. That gunman uh, killed two women that day in Brookline. It was the same guy. Uh, the people he killed were Shannon Lowney and Leanne Nichols. He killed them both on the same day in 1994. They were both receptionists at two different clinics on the same street in Brookline. The gunman then got away. Uh, he fled to Virginia, it turns out, where he kept up the rampage. He shot into the doors of another abortion clinic in Norfolk, Virginia, but then he was captured by police. 
the clinics where the shootings happened, where two people were killed and five people were shot and wounded. Those two clinics were routine targets for anti-abortion protesters at the time. According to contemporaneous reports, an hour after that gunman killed Shannon Lowney at the Brookline Planned Parenthood, somebody called that same clinic and told a counselor there who answered the phone, quote, you got what you deserved. Shannon Lowney's family later announced they were creating a fund to help provide protection at clinics, both for the patients who attended the clinics and for the employees who work there. Eventually, the state of Massachusetts did pass a specific law aimed at protecting those people. In 2000, Massachusetts Republican Governor Paul Cellucci signed a new law that said, even though you can protest outside a clinic that provides abortion services, you cannot get closer than 18 feet to the entrance. That's principle is why you see those yellow lines painted on the ground around some of the entrances to some clinics in Massachusetts. Those lines are there so people know they can state their case. They can say whatever they want. They just can't physically approach the people entering a clinic or the clinic's patients. Then in 2007, that buffer zone law in Massachusetts, which was enacted after those two young women were shot and killed, uh, that buffer zone law was strengthened to 35 feet. And it is that 2007 law from Massachusetts, the 35-foot buffer zone, that law is now awaiting word on its fate from the United States Supreme Court. In a case very similar to this in 2000, the court ruled in favor of Colorado's version of this law. But this year, everybody sort of expects that this, the court's going to rule against the Massachusetts buffer zone, or, or at least that they're going to weaken it. The court has heard the oral arguments in the Massachusetts case already. They're expected to rule on it in June. And, of course, if they do rule against the 35-foot buffer zone, which is designed to protect patients seeking access to those clinics and the staff who work at those clinics, that ruling could have reverberations not just for Massachusetts, but for any state with a similar buffer zone set up for clinics that provide abortion. And not just abortion clinics, military funerals other places where buffer zones limit free speech geographically in the name of protecting other rights, polling places, the Supreme Court itself. Today, of course, is the anniversary of the Supreme Court's landmark ruling protecting a woman's right to get an abortion in this country. Forty-one years ago today was Roe versus Wade. President Obama today put out a statement praising that decision, calling the right to get an abortion in this country part of, quote, reproductive freedom. Also in Washington today, because it is the anniversary of Roe, anti-abortion protesters took to the National Mall for their big annual anti-abortion rally. It's something they do every year. They call it the March for Life. Republican elected officials always, always speak at the March for Life. But this year, the Republican Party sort of tripled down on their support for this march. They delayed the start of the Republican Party's annual winter meeting so members of the RNC could go to the march and not miss any of the meeting. The chairman of the Republican National Committee himself attended the march, and the RNC chartered a bus. They provided bus service to and from the march for RNC members. At their winter meeting, once it got underway, once everybody had their chance to go marching against abortion rights, the RNC introduced a big new anti-abortion resolution for its members, stating that Republican candidates for office must stop shying away from being anti-abortion. They should loudly declare how anti-abortion they are. And if a Republican candidate for office does not talk enough about just how against abortion rights they are, this resolution says the RNC should not support that strategy as that candidate runs for office office. Republican National Committee set to vote on that new be louder about being anti-abortion resolution uh, by Friday of this week. Meanwhile, in Congress, they're considering these measures, not just a matter of marching in the streets and dealing with the Supreme Court. 
Legislature matters here, too. And in Congress, Republicans control the House of Representatives. The Judiciary Committee of the House of Representatives, uh, specifically the Republican majority on the Judiciary Committee of the House of Representatives, which looks like this, all these lovely ladies, uh, they decided that the first bill they would mark up in 2014, the way they would start this new session of Congress, the very first thing they would work on would be the No Taxpayer Funding for Abortion Act which concerns abortion coverage and whether or not Washington, D.C. is allowed to spend even its own money, even non-federal money, providing access to abortion for low-income women in that city. That was the very first thing that the Republican-controlled House Judiciary Committee decided to work on this year. And all the male Republicans on that committee, which is all the Republicans on that committee, unanimously voted for it. But not before telling the one representative of Washington, D.C. in Congress, Eleanor Holmes Norton, that she would not be allowed to speak on the issue. Republicans in the House are also expecting this year to make their most concerted push ever for a federal nationwide ban that would criminalize abortion all across the country at 20 weeks or later. The House voted to pass a 20-week ban last year. This year they are on a renewed push for it. They think they can try to get it through the Senate too. They're going to mount a concerted effort to target centrist Democrats, hoping that, that those centrist Democratic votes and all the Republican votes in the Senate would help them get that abortion ban through the Democratic-controlled Senate, whereupon it would be promptly vetoed by President Obama. The Supreme Court just last week struck down Arizona's version of a 20-week ban on abortion, or rather they allowed to stand a lower court ruling that had struck down the Arizona law. But House Republicans still say they want that for the whole country. They think this is the year they're going to be able to get it passed. And as we await probably an, yet another ruling on 20-week bans, federally clarifying that issue after what they did at Arizona, and as we await the judicial fate of the Massachusetts buffer zone law that passed after that fatal rampage in Brookline and created a safety buffer zone around those clinics, as we await those things judicially, the Republican Party, not just in the states but in Washington, is declaring that more than anything else, more than any other policy issue in the country, the one thing that unifies the Republican Party in the United States is how opposed they are to abortion rights. War and peace, spending versus not spending, hands-off government versus hands-on government, guns, gays, the Voting Rights Act. I mean, there are real differences of opinion among elected Republicans on all of those issues. But on abortion, unity. There is one Republican position on which you can say there is unity. And they are putting it at the forefront of what it means to be a Republican. They think it's not just the right thing to do. They think it's going to work for them strategically. Why do they think that? And what does it mean for our politics? Kyla and I agree There's way too much bigotry And politics won't do a thing for us Unless we do the trick ourselves and cause a fuss This country loves its image It's got motored dust and snow Of course there's You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the Clinic Vest Project, 
It's nearly impossible to keep up with the latest news on reproductive health clinic closures, detrimental court rulings, and restrictive laws passed by state houses. Just this week, the Fifth Circuit Court upheld the Texas law made famous by Wendy Davis's filibuster this summer, which ultimately passed and closed approximately one-third of the state's clinics. The last clinic in the expansive and economically disadvantaged Rio Grande Valley closed recently as well, unable to keep pace with costly, unnecessary requirements passed under the guise of patient safety. Clinics from Ohio to South Dakota to Wisconsin are under siege, underfunded, and under threat of closure because of patriarchal policy based on ideology rather than science and input from physicians. With fewer and fewer clinics left standing, picketing has become an ever-increasing problem. From the last clinic in Mississippi to healthcare facilities in safe blue areas like Queens, New York, doctors who provide abortion care report heavier harassment now that anti-choice extremists have less ground to cover. Because of the Supreme Court case challenging the Massachusetts State buffer zone, which provides a reasonable separation of picketers and patients, and a publicity push by NARAL and others, the climate outside our nation's reproductive health care clinics is finally getting some attention. Community members are stepping up and standing with providers, staff, and patients by volunteering as clinic defense escorts. The Clinic Vest Project is a resource created by longtime pro-choice activists to connect would-be volunteers to existing escort groups while providing training and materials to those establishing new programs across North America. If there's a clinic in your community, simply driving by on Saturday mornings, the busiest day for most reproductive healthcare facilities, and pausing to see if the signs are accompanied by screaming and harassment will let you know if your neighbors need you to stand up. You can follow the Protect the Zone hashtag on Twitter for posts, video, and pictures from escorts around the country to discover why groups are growing and how effective, peaceful clinic defense volunteers are aiding the establishment of new buffer zone protection ordinances. Visit the Clinic Vest Project on Facebook for free training resources, equipment, and guidance on how to best help the clinic in your neighborhood. Healthcare that is technically legal but not accessible further widens the gaps created by privilege and increases the burdens on low-income Americans who are seeing their only available healthcare taken away. Standing up for our country's clinics not only aids the individuals in our community seeking care, but shows legislators and anti-choice groups that the majority of Americans believe they should be able to walk into a clinic without driving a thousand miles round trip and without intimidation as they do so. Activism. out from in front of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all and some serious stuff is going down civil war intolerance aids obliteration the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling earth's nations the spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days and it will not be your saving grace why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage a couple of weeks ago, we actually had on uh, Katie Klebusik on this program, actually. And she is a, I don't know where this paper went. She is she's a, an act, a reproductive rights activist, reproductive health activist. And she actually, in addition to her writing uh, and her, her radio work and her you know activism on social media, she literally acts as a physical escort. Uh, for people at abortion clinics. This is a thing that I've learned more about recently. It's kind of stunning work. I mean, basically, as you know, uh, these anti-choice people show up at these places, scream at women, attempt to intimidate them as they go to access uh, their reproductive health care, uh, and escorts are there actually to 
uh, to protect them and to basically help get them into the building so they can acquire their health care. It's incredibly important work, and it's incredibly brave work. Now, last week when Sam was speaking with Irene Carmon, I think her name was, she was talking about this rise in these new types of just rabid and radical anti-abortion, anti-reproductive health groups. Uh, and I just wanted to touch on this really briefly, just really as, as some type of show of solidarity, basically, because one of these groups, uh, which is uh, a, a, the PLAL, uh, which stands for the, uh, what is the Pro-Life Action League, which sounds like a uh, – they could work with that in a comic book. It's kind of funny. But at any rate, they released uh, photos on social media of Katie Klebusik, uh Robin Marty, who's a, a really important reproductive health journalist. Her work has been in Rolling Stone and other places. And also uh, Dr. Shirlene uh, Chastain, who is actually a abortion provider. Uh, they've released their names and they've released their faces. Uh, I, some of them are trying to release uh, addresses as, as well. And they've called on their members to pray for them. And this is the uh, this is the same types pray, of context. Pray as in P R A Y or pray on them as P R E Y. Exactly. And this is exactly the same type of context that and and all of the you know and of course. The, the actual organization is saying, look, this is about sending them prayers and this bizarre intimidation of them. But putting out people's names, information like that, sets the environment for the death threats and for all the other things that, in fact, as we know, several years ago got Dr. Tiller uh, murdered. Uh, so I want us to be aware of this and I want us to watch out for this. This is, this is really where reproductive rights is – on the ground right now, on the ground zero uh, uh, in America. And and we see on the state levels these extreme pushes against it. And then these new groups starting to really just formalize a process of informal social media harassment uh, and systemic attempting to silence people who work in this space. And we need to have solidarity with these people doing this work. We need to watch out for them. And we need to be clear about how we articulate what this movement is. People out there putting, posting people's information, uh, saying to pray for people. These are totalistic, extreme threats to an open democratic discourse in society. And they terrorize women accessing basic health care. Uh, so I, I know this isn't new to most people, but it's an important reminder that this is happening right now and who we need to be looking out for. Uh, let me just read a well, few look, the, quick IMs. The pro-life actually yeah, tell me, tell me. is asking, along with praying for them, Yes, they're asking that, they, that you give up one meal each week for them. So I'm thinking if we get some more of these pro-choice activists going out there and getting involved, we could possibly starve them out because they'll have to just <laughs> just keep up giving up these meals and they'll be they can't eat anymore. No, maybe they'll just get so tired that they that they that they can't like uh, go and harass people getting medical care. I 
find a win. I can hear my baby knocking too tired to let her in. I'm tired. Yeah, 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 I'm tired. Too tired. Too tired for anything. Too tired to walk. Too tired to run. I can hear my baby calling too tired. Too tired. Too tired. Hobby Lobby contraception mandate case is being heard in front of the Supreme Court tomorrow. Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Woods, both of which are for-profit companies that are asking to be exempt from the contraception mandate, which requires employers to offer health insurance that covers contraception and reproductive health care. Um, a lot of what you're hearing in the media are claims from um, the religious right or conservatives who are saying things like, well, why should employers have to buy you birth control? Or why is it that women can't just go down the corner to the local Target or CVS and buy their own birth control? And the issue is um, whether or not certain forms of birth control, primarily Plan B, Ella and Ella, which are emergency contraceptives, and then oh. another contraceptive, the IUD, whether or I not... I thought you started breaking out into a Rihanna song. You'd be like, Ella, Ella, <laughs> hey, I didn't know what was happening. I was like, I'm like, like Aaron, she really is on crack. She just like in the middle of the story, just starts saying, Ella, Ella, hey. Continue. That did not happen in any shape, fashion. Sure, sure did. No, it didn't happen. Um, so the issue is, is that Hobby Lobby has agreed to provide coverage for certain contraception, but not for those which they consider to be abortifacients or abortion-inducing drugs. And now the overwhelming medical consensus is that these, what they call abortion-inducing drugs or abortion pills, are are not. They're just not. So the issue is whether or not Hobby Lobby is entitled to sort of believe what it wants to believe about science, couch that belief as a religious belief, and then avoid an obligation to which everybody else is required to adhere. Basically, the problem is, is that a lot of this country, people in this country, don't believe that reproductive health care is actually health care. They seem to believe that birth control is something that you just take every time you want to have sex. I, I don't know if you recall back when Rush Limbaugh went on that rant against Sandra Fluck a couple of years ago about how, you know, Sandra Fluck was like taking a birth control pill every time she went out to get laid by some frat boy or whatever. People, there's just a fundamental misunderstanding about what it is, how it is women's parts work, how it is women's reproductive health care works, and how it is that that a combination of contraception and sex education actually will lead to a lower abortion rates, which is what these forced birthers seem to say or say that they want to happen, even though everything that they're doing and saying is almost designed to make sure the actual opposite happens. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to argue. I'm, I'm going to argue that uh, that you're wrong. This is this is not a fundamental dis- misunderstanding. They understand just fine. <laughs> like to, to a misunderstanding would mean for them to genuinely like, and they're all something you say. But no, look, doctors explain that this yeah, is a medical thing. True. Then all of a sudden they be like, "Oh, well, I didn't understand that. Now I do." No, it's not a fundamental misunderstanding. This is willful ignorance. This is actually a a, a specific thing because they believe a certain way and they want to be able to have control over uh, over how women interact and do certain things, and so they are willing to completely ignore all medical fact. Because medicine and science is liberal. And so they're willing to argue against any of that and just say, nope, nope, nope. Yeah. Nope. And so it's, it's, it's not a fundamental, uh, this is why education, even educating them 
doesn't help because they don't it's not really about that the only thing in half of these battles i would argue that we have to like wait for them to die and make sure we educate the next generation because i don't like they're not going to not do what they're doing right now but but the problem (laughs) is is that there are i mean it's not just old people it's not people who we can just wait for them to die off and then maybe then but we can out i I feel like in the younger generation we can outnumber them but like yes they're all gonna be people people who believe certain things all the time but it's it's there's no there's no Facts are useless in this fight. It's and true, it, and it's and it's and I it's I don't think you I don't think you guys understand how much that just hurt my soul to say that facts are useless in the fight. It's like because I, like that I I normally throw up a fact shield all the time. Like I, I'm I'm covered in facts, on facts, on facts, on facts. And if we just like we have we make the argument and show the facts, then ha. But if people no no. Well, no. I mean, actually, <laughs> the point that you're making is pretty stark in the Hobby Lobby case, for example. <laughs> Um, they claim that Plan B and Ella, which are emergency contraceptives, which prevent a fertilized egg from implanting into the, the uterus wall. The anti-choice forces, Hobby Lobby is claiming that that is an abortion, that preventing a fertilized egg from implanting in the uterus is an abortion. What's really important is that the media, there are mainstream media outlets that are reporting these lies, these this misinformation as fact. So you have our outlets like Reuters and the Washington Post and the New York Times talking about how Hobby Lobby was opposed to providing um, health care insurance for abortive fashions when there are no abortive fashions that the FDA has approved as contraceptive methods. That's just a, that's just false. Wait, abortive fashion, is that like a, a, a really cool outfit that involves abortions? <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like, a, <laughs> like, like fingerless like, gloves. <laughs> like, like, like certain types of outfits that are just so horrible that it causes an abortion. Right, yeah, exactly. Okay. That's exactly what that's it is. That's an abortive fashion. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. See, you learn things here on Twitter Prime. But the, no. <laughs> but no, an abortive fashion, an abortive fashion is essentially RU486, right? They're the abortion pills. Mifeprostol and Mifepristone. I can never pronounce those drugs. But they are basically the abortion pills that you take that enable you to, to terminate a pregnancy without going through a surgical abortion. Now, what these companies, or a lot of these companies and a lot of anti-choicers think are abortive fashions are not abortive fashions. And these are things like emergency contraception, IUDs, Plan B. These are contraceptive methods that interfere with ovulation. What these anti-choice and junk science adherents believe is that is that they prevent an already fertilized egg from implanting into the uterus. And to them, that's an abortion. So they basically get to define what they believe an abortion is, even though it's not an abortion. So basically, it's like Hobby Lobby saying, I believe that the sky is red, and I need the Supreme Court to grant me certain religious exemptions based on my belief, which you cannot question because it's sincerely held, based on my belief that the sky is red. And you've got other people going, but um, no, um, excuse me, lovers of Jesus, the sky is blue. I don't care! The sky is red. And the the problem is, is that the courts, when you're dealing with these sorts of claims of religious liberty, courts can't question sincerely held beliefs. So you can basically believe anything causes an abortion, call it an abortive fashion, and then seek relief in the Supreme Court. It's ludicrous. Hi, Best of the West. This is Daniel Platt from Albany, New York. I hear you on uh, how cold it is, Jay. Uh, I wanted to talk about 
the libertarian, libertarian caller Gordon and his definition of libertarianism, and link that to kind of past discussions about terms. His, uh, his definition of the right to say no. Uh, it reminded me of the atheist movement that I've been a member of uh, for many years, and the fact that anyone would focus on no or what you're not kind of mirrors the question of what you're for. Over the last early years, the atheist movement has split over this exact question. Half these are rather left-to-center humanitarian and want to be for human rights issues and struggle in solidarity with minority groups. There are many overlaps in feminism, racism, LGBTQ, progressive causes, and sometimes even class, because we see ourselves as other oppressed groups by a majority. They generally call their cap camp Atheism Plus, or start by identifying as psychohumanists, which I do. The other side of the movement wants it to be about, about just being atheist, uh, free speech and church state if separation issues are norm, and they want to focus on what they are not and see the movement as being anti-religious. They want to fight religion and take aggressive stances against others and for political or social reasons shun what the A-plus groups want to do, or atheism plus groups, which is, as stated, to build a wider, more diverse movement through intersectionality. The atheism-only folks are, for the most part, and you can say it with me, white, male, hetero, cis, and well-off, and despite their non-belief in a god, are general jerks, but make up a large portion of the movement, or at least the loud part. I was also turned on to by uh, my friend uh, about an article about splitting libertarians themselves into humanitarians and described brutalists on how they view liberty, with one enabling, seeing liberty as enabling people to work together peacefully, these are humanitarians, and the other that allows liberty being allowing people to assert their own preferences and form tribes and solve problems by perhaps being hateful. Freedom to them is as obvious as a concrete block. The point I want to make here is that grouping can be a very important tool in grouping within groups, or at least defining groups within groups. In doing so, you can avoid inaccurate generalities and better understand people. Whether you're talking about feminists, socialists, or atheists, these terms change definition based on the group or subgroup using it. It's a lot of work to learn how people use terms to describe themselves or how they describe others, but it's well worth it to avoid the myriad contradictions that we see day to day. I also want to point out that I credited UJ in an essay I just wrote on political correctness and it kind of covers a similar theme. You can find it by just Googling my name on, or going to uh, Scribd, uh, S-C-R-I-B-D, or just Google my name, Dan J. Platt, P-L-A-A-T. It's actually the first result. And it's called the two-side coin of political correctness, how uh, it can be both good and bad. So thank you very much uh, for the lengthier than usual call. Bye. Hello, Jay. This is Brad from Dallas, Texas. And I just got done listening to your podcast about the affliction of wealth. And uh, I think that the rich do have a good reason to fear because 
the way that they are uh, manipulating society now were the same things that caused the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, and what they need to understand is that the power that they wield is essentially over the steam valve of the uh, of the, the pressure cooker that is society. And it's their choice whether or not they want to let that steam off or whether they want to let it build and build. And clearly what we've seen in the last 30 years is the desire to crank it down, to take as much advantage as possible, regardless of the consequences. So if they want to keep it cranked down, then they will have to face the consequences that result when that pressure cooker explodes. That's all I have to say. Thanks, Jay. Hey, Jay, it's Wade from Texas. You were on to know about some abortion thoughts. And, of course, not knowing the context of the next show, I figured I would tell you what I think, you know, as a conservative. I've really never had a firm opinion one way or the other on abortion. I've always kind of been on the fence. And I do see both sides of it. I guess if you pushed me, I would say I'm pro-choice. But I do believe that these absolute bans on abortion are completely abridged, not just too far, abridged way too far. Let me, you think about it for a minute. If you think, if you find out that your child is going to be horrifically disabled and you're in the third trimester of, of pregnancy, think about how brave it is to be able to end that life, to take the pain that the child would suffer. Imagine what that how hard that is for, for, for the mother and the father to make that decision and, and take the guilt and the, and the pain on themselves. It's, it's a very brave thing, if you ask me. I have three children. I've, I don't have any disabled children. But I believe that if I had a disabled children, my greatest fear in life, the thing that would torture me, would be what happens to my child when I die. Because nobody will care for him or her the way I do. And, and knowing that you're probably going to outlive your child, I can't imagine a bigger fear. And being able, if, if, if you can stop a life that is that is not going to have any quality anyway, <laughs> that's a big decision, man. It's probably the biggest decision I can imagine as a parent. And I guess what I'm saying is that for those who have made that decision, I know there's other reasons why people get third trimester abortions. I'm just focusing on this particular one. For, for somebody to take that, that to make that decision, you, you got to say it's brave, and, and that's why I don't support absolute bans on abortion. I, I'm just—it's a bridge way too far, and it's—it's it, it's, it's a simplistic answer to a complicated issue. And that—I mean, debate the rest of it, but that—that's just too much for me. Anyway, Jay, that was my thoughts on it. Have a good one. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And please do keep the calls coming in on this subject. I would love to hear from more of you. Uh, but mostly today, I want to give you a sense of the role that Katie Klebusik played in the production of today's show. So she's she's been working with Best of Left for you know six or seven months now, somewhere somewhere in that neighborhood, and you know she does the the copy for the activism segments she manages the the social media outlets and uh, and today's segment the clinic vest project she was speaking very much from personal experience on this one she actually is a clinic 
escort. Uh, she goes out on the ground and helps guide patients into abortion clinics past the screaming protesters saying really terrible things to her and the patients and so on. And so, you know, she's really invested in this project. And then also she was mentioned, you, you know, it might have rung a bell, like the name might have uh, sounded familiar because uh, Michael from the Majority Report told the story of how Katie has actually been targeted by one of those really far right-wing anti-choice groups. And uh, and so that, that's been a story that she's been dealing with for you know a few weeks now. She's been interviewed several times and is kind of making the rounds on that. So uh, I was happy to have at least a little bit of her story included on this. So if you are sort of interested in this topic, uh, looking for more information, looking for guidance, thoughts, anything, like Katie sort of lives to help in any way. She she lives on Twitter. She's at Katie underscore speak. Uh, so you can reach her there. If you contact Best of the Left through the Facebook page or Twitter, she will get your message there. Or you can email me, jay at bestoftheleft.com if you'd like to reach her. She's an, an amazing resource uh, for lots of things, but especially on, on this subject. So if for any reason you feel like you want to get in touch with her, it's pretty easy to do through this show. Uh, so please feel free to uh, chime in on the conversation. Uh, but that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog so coming to you from inside the beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com and it's a crying shame how we get so trained